I have my awesome Norman Rockwell Valentine's Day. I get to wear it once a year tie on. All right, it's good to see everybody today. I'm glad you're here. So apparently in planning out series of Exodus, we took a lot of things into consideration like Easter and Passover, but we didn't really take Valentine's Day into consideration because we have the death of the firstborn today, so not particularly great planning on my part. But it's a long passage. We're at the end of Exodus chapter 12, the second half of the chapter, uh, starting at verse 28 to the end, and... Um, I'm going to read it as uh, we go through, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We need to be reminded of God's sovereignty. We need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. When we see your judgments in your word, we would not be deaf with our ears or hard with our hearts. Cause our hearts to be soft, help us to hear your warnings, and flee to you. Help us to praise you as we see your providence in the world and your sovereignty displayed before us this morning as your holy, inerrant, and authoritative word. Help us to trust it, obey it, and most of all, help us to see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, Americans think of themselves as mobile people always on the move, pulling up stakes for new jobs, moving often. And that's been our history. The history of America has largely been the story of how immigrants from the old world came, claim, and conquered the new world. As the historian Carl Wicke noted, eight nationalities were represented on Columbus' first voyage to a continent that eventually received its name from a German map maker working in a French college who honored an Italian explorer sailing under the flag of Portugal. And that's a good explanation for where we're at. And we've been a mobile people ever since. I mean, just look at all of you. How many of you have moved in the last five years? I can't raise my hand. About a third of you. Okay, so actually the Census Bureau reports that roughly every ninth person gets a new address every year. But Americans actually tend not to go very far. Two out of three moves end in the same county. Only 16% of moves actually cross the state line, and only 3% leave the country. A prospect that leaves many people mortified and unsettles even the worldliest person. Why else do the most seasoned travelers ask, can someone meet me at the airport? Airports are not scary. They are purposely bland, simple to navigate, reassuringly similar. What's scary is the uncertainty embedded in any journey, that vague uh, foreboding, like that feeling in the pit of your stomach, when you find yourself in a place where you don't know anyone and darkness is gathering and nothing is like back home. So when the Syrians 
began emerging from the Aegean Sea this last year. Scrambling for footing on the submerged stones that form the doorstep of Europe, that site produced what 200,000 deaths in Syria could not, which was a surge of feeling for our fellow man. But then few Westerners have actually seen war. And almost no one has witnessed the kind of violence that's emptying Syria, a confounding conflict involving some 7,000 different armed groups. Right now, the Middle East seems an excellent place to leave, even if it means entering the realm of the migrant or refugee. And it's a crowded realm. More than one million people entered Europe in 2015, cascading in at a rate sometimes over 10,000 people a day that underprepared and overwhelmed governments quickly declared a crisis. And yet the Syrians, along with the Iraqis and Afghans in the same rubber dinghies, are only the most visible driftwood in a wider stream of human beings. A tidal flow that's been running actually for decades, from poorer countries to richer countries. It leads from Latin America to the United States, from Burma to Malaysia, and in most of the world, Africa, the Middle East, and much of Asia, towards Europe. And it's not going to stop or at least so says Bezid Yagmanian, who's a professor of political economy at Ramapo College of New Jersey. And he wrote the book called Embracing the Infidel, Stories of Muslim Migrants on the Journey West. He says, because of globalization, you now have awareness of life elsewhere in the world, and that's crucial, so now you move. Try to get a understanding of just how big this great migration of 2015, which has continued unabated into 2016, how big it really is. You have to realize that now, right now, one out of every 122 people in the world are refugees. Half of them are children. And a quarter of those children are unaccompanied. No parents or family. And if you run the numbers, that's approximately a million children worldwide on the move by themselves. And we're not talking children like 17. We're talking children like seven. By themselves, on the move. And it's very dangerous. Last year, 3,800 people died trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea. And there were 400 more in January. That's over 10 drownings a day. There are 2.3 million Syrian refugees in Turkey and 1 million in Lebanon. Nearly 25% of the entire population of the country of Lebanon is composed of Syrian refugees. Almost half the population of Jordan is either former or current refugees. Jordan is one of the driest countries on earth. And as of last week, they were giving away 10 million liters of water a day to refugees. For comparison purposes, uh, in 2014, the European Union granted asylum to 185,000 refugees. 
2015, they got asylum requests from 1.3 million refugees. It's the biggest wave of mass migration since the end of World War II. And I was reading all these articles about this, and I was struck by one man. And they asked him why. And he said, I come to Europe to feel like a human being. But what really struck me is throughout Europe, it's being referred to as the Exodus. When somebody talks about the Exodus, everybody knows what they're talking about. This mass migration of people flooding into Europe with no place to go, no particular destination. Camps popping up all over the place. They call it the Exodus. I wonder where they got that name from. Well, you know where they got that name from. Obviously, it comes from this book, which we've been studying since September. This book deals with another great migration. It deals with another large number of displaced peoples. It deals with another people who are fleeing oppression and potential famine. It deals with another people who are on the move simply in order to survive in order for these people, the Hebrew people, to get to the promised land, the land of milk and honey, first they have to pass through the desert. And even though they're leaving times of great difficulty, slavery, oppression, hatred, the destruction and devastation of the plagues, the turning of the Egyptians against them, little do they know of the times, <coughs> excuse me, the times of great difficulty ahead of them. So if they're going to get there, they're going to get through the desert. There's a number of issues that have to be worked out first. And that's what brings us to our passage today in Exodus 12. We're going to start with verse 28 and the issue of obedience. The issue of obedience. They have just been commanded to do the Passover, to conduct the Passover, to have the Passover meal, to kill the lamb, to eat it as family groups, and then to paint the blood on the doorposts and around the doors of their home. And we pick up verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At first thought, that's kind of a throwaway phrase, isn't it? No, actually not. That's why it's a whole point by itself. It's filled with significance. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded them, so they did. The obedience of Israel to God, and specifically to this command for the Passover, is specifically noted. Now that might be insignificant until you realize that this phrase, as the Lord commanded, so they did, 
is repeated 64 times in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Chronicles. That's a lot of times. 64 times this phrase is repeated in the early history of Israel. It's clear, therefore, that God's concerned that people do what he says. They obey his commands specifically for worship, because the Passover meal is a worship service. And that they obey it carefully and precisely. It's emphasized by the repetition of this phrase. God expects to be worshipped in accordance with the commands of his Bible. One aspect of all true worship is that it's according to God's command, which is to say, in other words, it's in accordance uh, with Scripture. We see here what we in Reformed circles refer to as the regulative principle of worship. We're actually going to spend a lot of time in the second half of the book looking at the significance of that and the implications of that. But the first issue that God lays before them is one of the need, the requirement, the command, and the demand for obedience. If you're going to follow God in the desert, it's best if you get the obedience issue resolved before you leave. But God also wants them to know the consequences of disobedience, which leads us to the next issue, and that's the issue of judgment. Starting with verse 29, the issue of judgment. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. There was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. So starting at verses 29 and 30, we see something else in this passage. All Egypt is stricken by this plague, the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh is roused from his sleep. So what's that indicate? I think, first of all, it indicates God's humbling of Pharaoh. The extent of God's judgment against Egypt is emphasized in two ways. First, the plague hits everybody. From the greatest to the least, from Pharaoh's house, it says, all the way down to the dungeon. The Lord is saying, everyone, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon, is touched by God's judgment against rebellion and sin. From the greatest to the least, they're all judged. Second notice, even the domestic animals suffer. The cattle are touched. We see here the extent of God's judgment. No one is outside the reach of God's judgment. Now how is Pharaoh humbled by being raised from his sleep at night? Well, I think it's a little obvious. It's pretty clear. I mean, if you think about it, I'm sure that like the advisors to the president have to tremble a little bit when events happen that require them to make their way into the private quarters of the White House in order to wake the president up in the middle of the night. 
you don't do that lightly, I would guess. Mr. President, there's something fairly pressing. You need to know about it. You need to make a decision. I'm sure for those people it's a judgment call. But here in Exodus, they've got to wake him up. Pharaoh is being roused in the middle of the night. It's a sign of God's humbling him. His household is threatened. His firstborn has died. He's being humiliated. His own succession, the whole uh, dynastic succession of his house is being threatened by the judgment of God. And he's rudely awakened to hear that message. What's going on? God is showing his superiority over the God of Egypt. He's showing his superiority over all his enemies. Pharaoh had threatened to kill the children of God's firstborn son, Israel, and now the firstborn of Egypt are in the hands of God. You know, in many uh, ancient cultures, the firstborn child was considered to belong to whatever gods it was that those people worshipped. And sometimes, uh, particularly in the case of those who were Molech worshippers, the firstborn children were literally sacrificed to that God. And here the one true God lays his claim to sovereignty over Egypt by taking its firstborn into his hands. Then we see verses 31-32, another sign of God's sovereignty and judgment. Pharaoh here is left in abject humiliation. God's sovereignty is displayed in Pharaoh's response to this final plague. He has to eat his words. Back in chapter 10, Pharaoh said, uh, chapter 10, verse 28, Pharaoh said to, to him, he's talking to Moses, get away from me. Take care to never see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. But now, having been woken up in the middle of the night with this horrible news of the death of the firstborn, his firstborn, but the firstborn of all the people, it's a lot of people in Egypt. Depending on who you read, it's somewhere north of 10 million people. They had average more kids than we do today. So you're probably talking something in the neighborhood of 2 million plus families. Not a house didn't have somebody who died. It's a couple million kids. This is a great cry rose up. Some versions say loud wailing. You imagine two million homes crying and wailing at the same time. I thought about that, and I was like, I'm not sure they even had to go wake Pharaoh up. He probably could just hear all the screams. And yet, our text says, Pharaoh summoned Moses. Last time he talked to him, he said, next time I see you, you're a dead man. Now he's surrounded by death. He summons Moses and Aaron by night and says, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Get up and go. You've been asking to leave for months. Just do it. Go. Just as God had told Moses, he brings Egypt to its knees in freeing Israel. And the plague of death strikes Pharaoh and Pharaoh's house, and he's reduced to begging Moses to take his people and their possessions and leave. Just go. And I think those phrases must have been particularly difficult 
for Pharaoh to repeat. Because he says, verse 32, as you have said. In other words, Pharaoh's surrender is unconditional. The negotiations have come to an end. There's no, okay, you want this? Well, you're going to have to do this for me. It's just, as you have said. Just as God said, just as Moses said, that's how it'll be done. And this is being said through the voice, through the lips, through the mouth of God's sworn enemy. The guy who way back at the beginning of this said he didn't even know his name. But that's not all. Before he goes, Pharaoh says one more thing. He says, take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. Now there's a world of significance in that. And I think the greater significance lies in the fact there is no reply to that request. Because the answer, just like Pharaoh's initial answer uh, had been to Moses, is no. He says, you can go, but bless me. And there's this deafening silence. God redeems his people, and all that align itself against his people, he destroys. So who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? It's not just lyrics to an old hymn. It's now a life or death question. So the second issue that God lays before them is what happens when you screw up the first issue? When there's no obedience, there's judgment. Don't believe God? Look at Egypt. If you're going to follow God in the desert, it's best you get the obedience issue resolved and you understand the consequences of disobedience before you leave. Because the command for obedience and the consequences of God's judgment lead us straight into the issue of sovereignty. The issue of sovereignty, starting at verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So first we see verse 33, Egypt's people are urgently begging Israel to leave. And Israel goes out with their bread unleavened. In this passage we can see enslaved people being begged by their oppressors to leave. You can already start to sense the irony here. There's actually a lot of irony in this story. It's a nation of slaves begged by its oppressors to go free. It's a display of God's sovereignty. Back in chapter 5, God had given a command to Pharaoh that they should send them out. Exodus 5.1 says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go. They may hold the feast to me in the wilderness. And then in Exodus 6, verse 1, he reiterates that command to Moses. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. In other words, not only should he let his people go, but he's going to send the people out. 
Well, here in Exodus 12, the people of Egypt used the very same language in freeing the Israelites that God had used. The Egyptians are urgent with the people to send them out. Remember, all along, God had told Moses that when he brings Egypt, uh, and brings Israel out of Egypt, it's not going to be by the skin of their teeth. It's going to be a total conquest, total victory. The Egyptians themselves are going to uh, beg the Israelites, go do the will of the Lord. And in verse 34, we see here that Israel leaves in haste before anybody has any second thoughts, just as the Lord had told them to. God has given instructions to the children of Israel, but that when that moment comes, they need to be ready. You've told them what provisions to make, what to expect, and so the children of Israel leave with unleavened bread bound up in their clothing, as the Lord has told them. But the main point of this uh, passage is that God's victory is so complete over Egypt that the Egyptian people themselves begin to echo the language of God in sending out these slaves. The Egyptians take on the language of God uh, that God himself used. They echo the language of God, sending out uh, the slaves. And it shows us how complete God's victory is. If you think about everything that we've been through so far in Exodus, it's kind of hard to believe. I mean, those who are the oppressors and the enemies are now affirming the very same language that God used. You know, this is not the last time this is going to happen. You fast forward all the way into the New Testament to Philippians chapter 2. And we hear the Apostle Paul uh, saying, Therefore God has exalted him, speaking of Jesus, exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether you believe it or not, whether you follow Jesus or not, whether you're a Christian or not, Every knee bows and is going to say what God says. We're just getting a foretaste of that here with the Egyptians begging the children of Israel to leave. They acknowledge everything that God has said, that they would acknowledge both by his promise and prophecy. So first of all, we see this irony of God's sovereignty, this enslaved people being begged by their uh, slave masters to go free. Now we go on verse 35, 36. We see fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Not just what he said uh, at the beginning of the book, which would be Exodus 3, but a fulfillment of things he said all the way back in Genesis. Turn back to Exodus 3. Look at verses 21, 22. God had promised Moses that he would not send Israel out of Egypt empty-handed. He would cause Israel to find favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, and they would give them much in terms of material blessing. All the way back in Exodus 3, we read, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house, for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." And now here we are in Exodus 12. And we have a deliberate repetition of the language of Exodus 3. It says, The people of Israel had done also as Moses told them, 
For they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. But this provision is not just a part of what God had promised to Moses in Exodus 3. It's also part of what God promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. Back in Genesis 15, God said, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. In other words, God is promising Abraham that after the years of captivity, which are way in the future, his people, his descendants, will be brought out of Egypt and will not come out empty-handed, but in fact, they will come out with great possessions, having plundered the Egyptians. So in this way, God is providing just provision for people who've been economically oppressed. You think about it, there's no 401ks uh, back then, there's no IRAs, there's nothing for slave people. They have nothing to show for 430 years of hard labor, and God justly provides it at the hand of the Egyptians. Well, again, there's irony here. This ragtag bag of, uh, band of families, it's leaving Egypt you know, as if they had just mopped up on the field of battle. You know, that's how it usually happened in the ancient world. You had a war, you had a battle, you got the spoils of war, you went in, you took whatever you want, you took all the people's stuff, mostly you took all the people, and you won. But that's not what happens here. They didn't mop up on the field of battle. God did. The Israelites didn't lift a finger. In fact, they were resistant to his work all along. They've been skeptical of his promises. But God mops up Egypt on the field of battle, and so this ragtag band of families called Israel leaves with plunder like some kind of victorious army. And that's the irony. God made Israel more than conquerors through his promises and through his faithfulness, even though they're just a bunch of poor, oppressed slaves. And it's a picture, again, of how the story of redemption is not us gloriously accomplishing God's will, but God using us in spite of ourselves and God bringing about his own purposes. And so the families of Israel leave Egypt like a conquering army, even though it was God who had done the conquering. So the third issue that's laid before him is a why why there's a command for obedience, and why there's judgment for disobedience. God is at work. Don't believe God? Look at Egypt. And if you didn't believe in God's sovereignty before, how could you not believe now? You must get this issue of God's sovereignty right before you leave. And in case you doubt this, God reminds you of the issue of faithfulness of the issue of faithfulness, verse 37, faithfulness. There it says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much uh, livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. 
at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt so that this same night is the night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So here we see a description of Israel departing from Egypt, and we find the meaning of the unleavened bread reiterated. But the point of the passage is not here about the bread. It's about the single family of Jacob has become a mighty nation. Another irony of God's sovereignty. When Israel goes down into Egypt, she is a single family. So the children of Jacob, 70 people with cattle and possessions. When she comes out, she's described as 600,000 men on foot. The numbers here are meant to remind us of the faithfulness of God in his promises to Abraham. Remember the days when Abraham had no son? The Lord said to him, Genesis 17, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And here, more than 430 years after that promise was made, 600,000 fighting men, plus women and children and a mixed multitude out of the worst possible conditions, out of the conditions of uh, oppression and slavery, come out of Egypt. I mean, it even reflects the directions of God to Adam to be fruitful and multiply. And they have done that in the worst conditions. And we come to the mixed multitude. We're going to actually talk about that later on. And we come to the second explanation of the unleavened bread. I'm not going to spend any time on there because Dave covered that so well last week. But I want you to see the big picture. A single family of Jacob has become a mighty nation. God has demonstrated his faithfulness to the people of Israel by the people of Israel. You are 70 people. I said great nation. Now you're 600,000 men. And I, God Almighty, am faithful to you because I, God Almighty, am totally sovereign. God has raised up a mighty army in the midst of the most trying conditions, just as he does today. He's raised up a mighty army to serve him in bringing justice against the Canaanites out of the most unlikely subjects, just as he does today. And so we see, once again, this irony of God's sovereignty. Who would have picked the slaves of Egypt to be more than conquerors? Well, God did. It's amazing. It's a sign of his faithfulness. Now look down at verse 42. Because 42 is important. It contains something that should be precious to us. Let's read it again. It says, It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. It stresses the importance of observing this night of the Lord. It's the night that the Lord brought us out, and we observe it for him. But it's easy to miss the meaning here. One possible uh, rendering of it is this is a night watch service for the Lord watched over you that night. And we've come upon another 
irony. Who's the greatest god of Egypt? Ra, the sun god. But Ra hid at night. He hid from the forces of darkness and chaos. And the mightiest god of Egypt is not at work in the middle of the night, but the god of Israel is. In her hour of need, he's watching over her in the middle of the night to bring her out of the darkness and out of the chaos and out of the oppression and into freedom. Ra hides, but the Lord provides. And once again, we see the irony of God's sovereignty over the gods of Egypt. The Old Testament scholar, RTS professor John Curid, uh, tells that he once heard a sermon in a uh, missionary Baptist church, that's a black Baptist church, in the Mississippi Delta. He heard the pastor preach on this passage, and it was called, God Works the Night Shift. That's exactly what it is. And you can hear that phrase repeated 112 times in that sermon. You thought I was repetitive. God works the night shift. It's exactly what he does for his people in this passage. The Lord works just as he promised. You know, it's so hard for Israel to believe that. But it happens in the timing, just as he said. It happens in the circumstances, just as he said. But Israel still has a hard time believing that. And once again, Moses is showing us that God is worth trusting. He keeps his word. He's faithful. The children of Israel should have expected him to be faithful. But because of their own lack of faith, they act surprised. And I think that's still a struggle for us. God tells us things in his word that we shouldn't be surprised about. Have you ever prayed for the Lord to do something and he did it? And were you surprised? Well, it happened. What did you expect? You didn't expect God to answer prayer? Here again, God is demonstrating that he's worth trusting. So the fourth issue that God lays before them is you can believe in God's sovereignty because he has proved his faithfulness. You have to get this issue of faith in God right before you leave. And not only you, us. It's not enough for Moses to believe. All Israel needs to believe. It's not enough for me to believe. All of you need to believe. Because for God, this is an issue of unity. Starting at verse 43, an issue of unity. Yeah, there's a lot of blanks today, just so you'll pay attention. Starting at verse 43, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired work may worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. So here we have direct commands from God about the Passover. Passover is commanded as a spiritual meal. It's a spiritual meal for the covenant community and memorial of their redemption. We're taught a number of things in this passage. Can't possibly do justice to them all. There's a lot here. So let me give you a quick overview of the significance of these verses. 
primarily, again, trying to look at the big picture, we're taught about the unity of the Lord's people and their distinction from the world. The instructions about the Passover stresses both of those things, the unity of God's people and their distinction from the world. Look again at verse 43. There's a, a directive here. It's the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. A distinction is being made between God's people and foreigners. Now, don't jump to conclusions. This is not about bigotry. There is a spiritual distinction being made. You can also see it in verse 48. The stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. So it's not a discrimination between people groups. This is not a, well, you're not of our bloodline, you're not a child of Abraham, um, and so you can't participate, you don't get to eat any of the food. It says if the stranger decides uh, to sojourn with the people of God, even if he has no Hebrew blood, fine. Let him be circumcised, let his family be circumcised, let him come and celebrate the Passover. So these words make clear it's only those who are in covenant with the Lord, as evidenced by having received <coughs> the covenant sign of circumcision, get to take this holy meal. The holy meal itself distinguishes God's people from the world. And contrary to the God of political correctness, the God of Israel makes distinctions between those who are his and those who are not his. And he insists his people honor that distinction. That's why when we invite the people to the Lord's table, we celebrated the Lord's Supper last Sunday, and uh, not everybody likes it, oh well, um, but we have a time where we invite people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and who have identified themselves with his people to come. We have elders come up and talk about repentant sinners and unrepentant sinners. And one of the functions of that and of this Passover is to preserve the spiritual purity of his people by making it very clear in their minds they are spiritually distinct from the world. They're not ethnically distinct because this passage doesn't matter what your bloodline is. You want to follow the Lord? Get the covenant sign, follow him, you're part of the community but you're spiritually distinct. Circumcision's been replaced by baptism. Passover's been replaced by the Lord's Supper. Principles still apply. Not anybody can take the Lord's Supper. You need to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's been baptized, who professes faith in Christ, who's part of his covenant community. Notice also the regulations uh, they seem kind of specific, and you kind of wonder, verses 46 and 47, it says, shall be eaten in one house, shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation shall keep it. These commands, in contrast to the stress uh, we put on being distinct from the world, these commands are given to enforce the unity of Israel, to bring about the unity of Israel and celebration of God's deliverance. There's four things here that you need to see. First, it's one lamb per house. You have to invite enough people over in order to be able to eat a whole lamb without much being left over. 
because you don't get to keep it. There's no Rubbermaid. You don't put it in the freezer. You eat it. Whatever's left gets burned. So you need to have enough people there to eat it. So you have fellowship. So you bring folks into the household so the lamb can be eaten. Second, no part of the lamb is to be taken outside the house, so you have to eat together. There's no individualist, isolated sort of spirituality, you know, me and Jesus and my Bible and my own private mystical experience. It's all the people of God together taking fellowship at this covenant meal. Everybody eats together. Third, notice the lamb's bones are not to be broken. The Apostle John points to this very different uh, way, different reason. Um, but very simply, notice this prevents parts of the lamb from being removed from the house. You can't break its bones. You're going to have to eat the lamb uh, that's there in the house because it can't be separated. It can't be broken. Fourth, everybody gets to participate. It's a command for the communion of the saints. So even in the worship of the redeemed Lord and the Passover meal, the people of God are drawn together in unity. It's one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper. We call it communion because it's communion with God, but it's also communion with each other. And so this passage not only emphasizes that these people are distinct from the world, but it also emphasizes their unity. The Passover is not just an ethnic celebration. It's not a national celebration. It's a spiritual feast that brings us together and, in a sense, creates a people. So the fifth issue that God lays before him is one of unity. You have to get this issue of faith in God right. You have to get this issue of obedience to God right before you leave. And you have to get it right together. These commands are given to the covenant community, the fellowship of the saints. So we not only do these things together, we believe these things together. Because once again, this is first and foremost an issue of obedience. Look at the last two verses, verses 50 and 51, an issue of obedience. All the people of the Lord did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So finally we see this, obedience to God's commands and the deliverance of God's people recorded together. These phrases in verses 50 and 51, you've already seen them a dozen times in the book of Exodus. You've seen them in Genesis. You're going to see them a whole lot more in Exodus and all the rest of the books of Moses. This is forceful language. These verses are designed to do two things. Verse 50 is designed to stress the importance of our obedience to God. And verse 51 is designed to stress the importance of God's faithfulness. He brought out the people of Israel just as he said he would. So the obedience of God, uh, the obedience of Israel is recorded here alongside the faithfulness of God. And it's done to show us that just as God saved Israel to worship, he also saved her to obedience. Or to put it in New Testament language, the book of Hebrews says, without holiness no one shall see the Lord. Why? Because one of the goals, we might even say a prime goal of our salvation is that we may be conformed to the image of God through the shed blood of his son who was his express image in this world in his life and in his death God's people are saved to worship and God's people are saved to obey we can worship God and we can obey God because God 
is sovereign. God has repeatedly demonstrated his sovereignty because God has repeatedly demonstrated his faithfulness. We already know that Moses believes this because Hebrews 11 tells us that he does. It says, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. We know that God's people had to get worship right then. We know that God's people had to get believing right then. We know that God's people had to get unity right then. We know that God's people had to get obedience right then. So what do God's people have to get right now? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. As always, open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Your word is rich. We can never live up to its glory, but we're always fed by its truth. Change us then by the truth of your word and receive all the glory for it. Help us to learn the lessons of your sovereignty, to trust in your faithfulness, to know that our God reigns and reigns for the good of his people. For this we give you thanks. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.